Hey guys, and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you for joining us for episode number 65 with your hosts, Tierra and Jack. And today we have another Q&A for you guys. Before we get stuck into the questions, however, we just wanted to remind you that if you do enjoy the content, please remember to repost a story on your Instagram and tag myself, tag Tierra, tag the Bodybuilding Dietitians, tell your, all your family and friends as well. And if you are interested in any of our coaching services or just want to check it out, head over to our website, www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com. You can search that on Google or just go to any of our Instagram bios as well and click on the link. Awesome. All right, guys. So let's get stuck straight into this Q&A episode. So this first question is a good one. And it says, scientific fact or myth? Does the metabolism of alcohol lead to increased fat storage? So this is a good question. And I think there's quite, there is quite a lot of myth uh, among alcohol metabolism and alcohol in general. Like for starters, a lot of people don't know that alcohol has seven calories per gram. And that's the pure ethanol itself. Like in beer, there's carbohydrates as well as alcohol, all that sort of stuff. You mm-hmm. rarely have fat though in alcoholic drinks. Yeah. Vodka ain't calorie free. Sorry to break it to you. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So one standard shot is approximately 10 grams of ethanol and multiply that by seven, seven calories per gram. That's 70 calories. And then let's say you add in I don't know, whatever you add into vodka. <laughs> what, what would you add to your vodka, Jack? <laughs> Let's just say some lemonade or something. And if that's not sugar-free, then you have the additional calories from that as well. Yeah, so exactly. Like a Smirnoff double black, like that's literally 140 calories from alcohol because it's a double shot. Plus it's a normal soft drink. So it's around like 40 grams of sugar. So I think those things are upwards of like 350 calories mm. per can. So... Yeah, just take that into account. (laughs) And there are three, I guess there are three levels of alcohol metabolism. Like there's an, you have the alcohol dehydrogenase enzyme, which is used for, I guess, if you want to call it non-excessive drinking, like drinking in moderation. Moderation, (laughs) yes. And then you have the MIOS enzyme, which comes into effect when alcohol dehydrogenase is saturated. So that's probably moderate to excess drinking. And then you have the catalase enzyme, which is purely excessive drinking. Mm -hmm. That's like alcoholics or people who drink very regularly. And basically those three enzymes, so MIOS and catalase come into effect in order to metabolize that additional alcohol but i would hope that everyone listening is in the alcohol dehydrogenase bracket yeah i'd hope that we're just you know you enjoyed in moderation and uh you ain't partying too hard too often (laughs) but the thing is guys is that alcohol it is recognized as a toxin to the body so you know when you do consume alcohol the body pretty much does treat it as a top priority to get rid of that alcohol and metabolize it as quickly as possible and alcohol does have a big influence on hepatic metabolism and how so hepatic pretty much meaning the liver so how the liver will metabolize different substrates and when you do consume alcohol you know some is absorbed through the stomach around 20 percent or so but the rest is absorbed through the small intestine just like all of your other nutrients you know carbohydrates and proteins and fatty acids so that does go to the liver and the liver will preferentially metabolize that alcohol first and it will actually suppress metabolic processes that are involved in 
gluconeogenesis, so the formation of new glucose. It also suppresses protein metabolism and it actually interferes with, you know, muscle protein synthesis. It also suppresses beta oxidation, so the breakdown of fatty acids. So yes, alcohol, you know, it is prioritized so that you can metabolize that alcohol, get those seven calories from that alcohol, use that energy preferentially before you actually start to use these other substrates as energy. And yeah, I'm sure many of you guys have heard of fatty liver disease or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And essentially the fatty liver disease is associated with excessive, excessive alcohol consumption. So as Tierra said, beta oxidation is inhibited and therefore you're storing triglycerides in the liver. Mm-hmm. And do that for long enough and you will end up getting cirrhosis and basically your liver will die. And that's when you need a liver transplant. See you later. (laughs) Yeah, so. Drink in moderation. (laughs) But yeah, hopefully that answers your question. Uh, But at the same time, guys, like it's not the end of the world. Like obviously you can only consume so many calories from alcohol and you're not surviving off of alcohol, you know? So yes, you will use those calories most likely first. And again, we're using the word suppress. So although it suppresses these metabolic processes, it doesn't mean that you're not inducing any sort of protein metabolism in the body or any sort of beta oxidation in the body. You know, these things are all still running, but just not at the same rate, if that makes sense. It's not like an on or off switch. It's more like a dimmer and that dimmer goes down. Yeah, if you are unsure of your alcohol consumption, we would strongly recommend just going to the alcohol guidelines. You can just Google that. And yeah, because if you are completely unaware, then might be good to just compare how much you are consuming to the recommendations. Because if you are consuming over the recommendations, like they are there for a reason, just like your fruit and vegetable consumption. So if you're consuming over the amount, then it is likely that something not good is going to happen down the line. So that's just our recommendation. And, you know, I guess to quote the Australian alcohol guidelines, they pretty much recommend that individuals don't consume over two standard drinks each day. And if you are engaging in, you know, a higher level of alcohol consumption, don't consume over four standard drinks at one occasion. And, you know, they also recommend that you should have alcohol-free days. And I'm a huge advocate of that as well. So, you know, those are the Australian recommendations. And uh, yeah, feel free to check those out. But my best recommendation would be try to stay sober if you can. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So moving on to this next question, it says, how do you overcome food focus and cravings for calorie-dense foods during prep? This is something a lot of people could probably relate to, eh? Mm. So to to a certain extent, it is completely normal to get cravings and desire more food during prep because your leptin hormone goes down, which is your satiation hormone, and ghrelin goes up, which is the hunger hormone. And to an extent, though, it does become sort of unnecessary and it depends like what sort of your mental attitude is. Like if you start prep in a spot where your energy availability is fairly low and you're craving certain foods uh, before prep even starts, 
then I wouldn't start prep for starters. Mm. And however, there is more evidence to suggest that indulging in highly palatable foods throughout prep uh, is only going to increase those cravings. So what we would recommend is maximizing your macros on highly voluminous foods like fruits, vegetables, whole grains. And although that sounds really boring, that is probably our number one recommendation for reducing cravings. Dude, the truth is it ain't boring if you know how to cook (laughs) and if you know how to spice things up. (laughs) Yeah. And I think I will always bring it back to like just the if you associate those highly palatable foods with like having a good time, like enjoying yourself, then that's what you're going to think. And that's what your mind is going to think as well. So you need to sort of start associating other types of foods. Like for example, like a protein cake, like instead of ice cream or mm-hmm. yeah, etc. That's, that's my <laughs> recommendation right now. Yeah. So, and when we're talking about highly palatable foods, we're talking about energy dense foods that are very high in both carbohydrates and fats. And it is completely normal to crave energy, right? When you are in a prep, because you generally are in a severe calorie deficit, you're at a very low body fat percentage. And like Jack said, your hunger hormones are all over the place, you know? So your body's literally screaming at you like, please feed me. But there just is a huge psychology component to it. So my best recommendation would be to don't like tempt yourself. And Mike Isertel, who, if you guys listen to other podcasts, especially like the Revive Stronger podcast, you'd know of Mike Isertel. He's always talking about how, you know, when you're in prep, it's almost as if like you're in prison, okay? And when you're in prison, don't tempt yourself with the idea of freedom, right? Like, like don't think about it, you know? Like, don't do that to yourself because it ain't gonna happen just then. So just, Think about something else, okay? I know that's kind of a strange recommendation, but basically what I'm trying to get at here is like, don't just, uh, don't go onto Instagram, you know, and follow more food pages than you follow fitness pages. And don't like search chocolate cake hashtags and just like scroll, you know, and drool and make a list of all these restaurants, you know, and dessert bars that you want to go to straight after your show. Like, don't think about these things. Like actually think about the show itself and the preparation itself, like, and actually stepping on stage in the best condition of your life. You know, these should be at the forefront of your mind, not a big slice of cake. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, physiologically, your body is going to be craving energy in general. And whether that be a salad, a steak or potatoes versus ice cream, donuts, uh, Nutella, your body is going to be craving energy in general. It's your mind that is differentiating the two of those different food categories. So like, I mean, in our, in our prep, when we did our first preps, Tierra's in prep now, but like we were both incredibly busy. Tierra is nowhere near as busy now as she was before. Well, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still very productive, but I ain't like, I ain't going crazy with masters and work and prep at the same time. Thank God. I don't want to be in that spot ever again in my life. (laughs) And that really helped us stay on track in terms of like, like we were rushing to get in meals let alone having time to worry about mm-hmm. our meals. And that, that is definitely a help as well. Like if you potentially have an office job and you're sitting there a lot, like twiddling your thumbs like that, I can, I feel your pain. That is not, that is not good for 
because you're basically counting down the seconds until your next meal. So potentially finding additional ways to occupy yourself. But I think definitely what Tierra said in terms of really focusing on the competitive aspect of it, as opposed to looking at food pages and stuff yeah, like that. Exactly. Like the number one motivator for you going through a prep shouldn't be all the highly palatable foods you can eat the second you step off stage. Like that can't be what you're dreaming about. Okay. You need to actually be dreaming about stepping on stage and whatever happens afterwards happens. But again, that shouldn't be your driving motivator. And yeah, just psychology plays such a huge role in it. And one thing that I really want to point out is that, yeah, I, I just wouldn't engage in eating very high amounts of highly palatable foods, even if you have the calories to do so during a prep, especially if you are running, you know, lower calorie days and then higher calorie days during the week. Like I personally would stick to the exact same food sources in general across all of those days, but on my higher, higher calorie days, I would just eat larger quantities of fruit, of oats, of wholemeal pasta, of potatoes, right? Like these very satiating foods. I wouldn't eat, you know, like very satiating foods like for five days of the week and then two days of the week when my calories are higher, I wouldn't go out, you know, and buy a bunch of ice cream and super sugary cereals and things like that because man, it's just, it's so, it, it just puts you at a big risk of just overdoing it, you know? And that's usually the case where people do run into, unfortunately, binge episodes when they kind of just let the reins go, you know? Yeah, definitely. And in saying all this, I think we should disclaim that there are people who can look at it very objectively and they can choose to have those highly palatable foods and uh, practice IFIM while still having um, whole grains, veg, fruit, and it works for them. And there are a lot of successful bodybuilders who do that. However, there are people who do that and claim it works really well for them and then look at their post-show habits. Like, mm -hmm. So you kind of have to look at it in that respect as well. And by no means are we throwing shade at either the question asker or any particular people in general. It's just things that we've seen. No, absolutely. Like if you want to put a Freddo on your oats with your berries, go for it. And yeah, I think that, you know, the psychology of the athlete before they enter a competition prep is really going to influence, you know, how they go about that prep and their post-show period. Because if someone is coming from a background of binging and restricting, then I think that they're a lot more likely to unfortunately have relapses either in prep or even, you know, post competition. But if you do have a very healthy relationship with food and you can practice IFFYM in a manner that you still prioritize nutrient rich foods first, but it doesn't bother you in the slightest if you do have a piece of chocolate, then yes, you can still, you know, practice those habits during a prep. It, it really comes down to knowing yourself and as a coach, really, really knowing your athlete. Mm, for sure. I think that's a good point to move on to the next one. Awesome. Okay. So this next question has to do with fiber and it says, how does fiber affect your carbohydrate intake? I've heard here and there that if you want to give your fiber intake into your carbs, for example, if you have 25 grams of fiber, you should eat an additional 25 grams more of carbs that day. But I don't believe it. How does this work? 
Jack, take the floor. Explain. <laughs> so this is a suitable question for the podcast because we actually have a lot of listeners from the US and of course a lot of a lot from Australia as well. And fiber and carbohydrates does actually impact Australia versus the US quite differently. So in Australia, when we track our carbohydrates, the fiber content is included in the carbohydrate. So on the back of wholemeal pasta or rice, if it says 25 grams of carbs and then down the bottom, it says five grams of fiber, the fiber is included in that carbohydrate. And ultimately it's, it's more about being consistent than having to subtract it or add it on or whatever you choose because fiber has approximately two calories per gram. And that'll, that may even change depending on the individual or the fiber type. And that's not even to mention that when fiber is fermented in the large intestine, it produces short change fatty acids, which have calories as well. So you can go on many levels there and argue whether to track it or not. But to Tierra and I both uh, track fiber as part of carbohydrates and that's what we've always done. We just stayed consistent with it. And as long as your fiber per day doesn't vary from like 25 grams to 100 grams or like having big jumps like that, it, it doesn't really matter that much. And in the US, just to describe what they do, they basically keep fiber and carbohydrates separate. So they'll have total carbohydrates, which is carbs and fiber. They'll have net carbohydrates, which is just carbohydrates. Then they'll have fiber as well. So again, you can choose what you want to do. Personally, I would track carbs and fiber together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's the easiest way to go about it. And just like you said, just keep it consistent, you know, and Generally, you know, the recommendations are that females are consuming at least 25 grams of fiber per day. Males are consuming at least 30 grams of fiber per day, but there's absolutely no issue with going above that as long as your gut can tolerate it. And generally people who do follow, you know, diets that are very filled with plant-based foods. So lots of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, legumes, like I would actually struggle to keep my fiber intake down near the 25 grams. So as long as your gut can tolerate it, it adjusts to it, it's okay to go upwards into the 40s or maybe even the 50s, maybe even higher if you're like Jack and I and uh, love a high fiber diet. But yeah, just keep things consistent. But I also just wanna make the point that, you know, foods are metabolized differently, especially if they do have a fiber component. You know, like 10 grams of carbohydrates from ice cream is going to be metabolized much differently compared to 10 grams of carbohydrates from carrots. So even though they're both 10 grams of carbs, they're still very, very different. And uh, you know, the thermic effect of food in that case is going to be very different. And just the way that, you know, your body is able to take up that glucose from that food. And yes, when you do have a higher fiber meal, it generally does slow down gastric motility, you know, and intestinal motility, and it actually blocks some of the enzymes involved in carbohydrate metabolism. So that's why it's recommended that you do have a good fiber component in each one of your meals, especially meals that do have high amounts of carbohydrates so that you don't have a massive increase in blood sugar levels, you know, so that there's not that initial increase and that initial crash. It's more, you know, a steady stream of glucose from the intestine into the bloodstream just to provide, you know, longer lasting energy. Mm. And 
maybe if you are tracking on MyFitnessPal, it might be worth checking out your fiber intake. And if you are lower than 25 grams for females, lower than 30 for males, then it's time to step up your game, I guess. Yeah, definitely. But also make sure that you are using the correct entries mm, too. That's a big issue, yeah. Because like some of my clients, you know, will we'll start tracking in the first week and I'll question, I'm like, wow, you only ate 11 grams of fiber yesterday. Like what, what happened there? And they're like, yeah, I don't understand because you know, I ate like two salads. I had four pieces of fruit. I had oats and I had wholemeal bread. And I'm like, well, that's definitely over 11 grams of fiber. So sometimes, you know, I don't like to say a poor workman blames his tools, but sometimes, you know, my fitness pal just can be a bit whack and it can have inaccuracies. So people just don't add the fiber when they create the foods. Yeah. So just make sure that you're using accurate nutritional entries that include the fiber. So in Australia, that's nut tab over in the U S it's USDA. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So just make double check that your entry actually includes fiber. And honestly, the gold standard me method for making sure that you are consuming enough fiber in the diet is, are you going to the bathroom? You know, <laughs> how are your bowels moving? So <laughs> you can always uh, test that too. Yes. And speaking about gold standard methods, we have a question here. Opinions on DEXA slash in-body scans accuracy for tracking progress. This is a good one because, you know, a lot of people, when they are going through body composition change, they do track it generally with Dexer or an in-body scan. Mm. Yeah, they are two very popular methods and in-body is undoubtedly cheaper, Dexer being more expensive, but overall it's not necessary to track your progress with them in a prep, definitely not. If your coach is able to do skin folds, that's more than adequate because you're basically looking for changes in body composition over time. It's more like icing or cherry on the cake because the whole point is just seeing the visual changes because it's if you're competing, it's an aesthetic sport. Even if you're dieting, you should be able to see changes and not to mention like the weight on the scale and yeah, the visual changes on top of that. So like if you do really want to go with one of them, we would definitely recommend the DEXA just because it's a gold standard method. There's just so much more research backing that up compared to in body, which just isn't as consistent or accurate in general. Yeah, and the reason for that is because in body scans, they use electrical impedance. So essentially you stand on a machine and you hold onto these two little bars and it sends a slight electrical current through your body, one that you can't feel of course, but it tries to differentiate between muscle tissue, bone tissue, and fat tissue, right? And then it spits you out a whole list of numbers and essentially your body composition. But it certainly does have major limitations and in the research, it's just not supported to be a gold standard method of tracking body composition. Whereas on the other hand, Dexter scans are pretty high up there, but Dexter scans use x-rays and uh, Dexter scans certainly are the gold standard method for testing bone mineral density. So they are highly used in the research, you know, for testing whether someone is at risk of osteoporosis or osteopenia. But, you know, a Dexter scan, pretty much it can be a reliable source of tracking body composition. However, it needs to be done under very, very specific conditions. So you always want to be using the exact same machine. It's best to use the exact same tester. You wanna be showing up for the Dexter scan 
in, under the exact same conditions. So you always need to be fasted. It needs to be first thing in the morning. Also, you know, your hydration status generally needs to be the exact same every single time you have one of these scans because the Dexter scan, what it does is that it pretty much identifies any sort of fluid in the body as lean tissue. So if you were to go and consume, you know, five liters of water, right? Of course you'd have a very full bladder, but then you hop on a Dexter machine, it would actually tell you that you'd gained five kilograms extra lean tissue. So I ain't complaining, you know, if those numbers showed up on my results, but you'd have to question like, is this really true? Or am I just gonna like, just go pee right after this? Mm. So there certainly are pros and cons, but it is expensive, you know, and really like the best method probably for just tracking body composition change during a comp prep is just having a coach who is ISAC qualified and is able to accurately and consistently take your skin folds. So yeah, taking skin folds, tracking body composition change through scale weight and progress photos. Progress photos are just number one because this is physique sport guys. It comes down ultimately to how do you look? Yeah, couldn't have said it any better. And for those who don't know what skin folds are, it's basically another anthropometric use of measuring body fat. And essentially you have skin calipers which pinch your skin thickness. And that's basically a way of representing subcutaneous body fat. And yeah, it's not the most accurate way of representing the body fat percentage because the formula that they used for that was based on uh, sedentary individuals and oh, wasn't it cadavers? Yeah, cadavers or sedentary individuals. They didn't have a large sample size either, but it is very, very good at measuring your change in subcutaneous body fat over time. Because you say if you pinch your abdominals and it's 10 mils uh, week 10, then you pinch them at week five, it says five mils, then you know you've lost five mils in, in subcutaneous body fat there, and that's decrease in fat in that area. And it's also good because you can see the changes in different areas. Like with an in-body scan, it just tells you, actually, I think in-body tells you. It tries, in, it, it tries. tries to. <laughs> Apparently it separates your limbs or something. Yeah. I don't know how they, they would do that. But uh, the good thing about calipers is you can pinch uh, up to 13 sites, I think. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of sites. We generally test over seven. Mm. But yeah, you can go up to quite a few and yeah, it gives you those differentiating values and you can see how they change over weeks and weeks and months, which we do for all of our clients mm -hmm. who can see us in person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, skin folds are awesome, you know, and it really comes down to the results. It's always about comparing you to you. You know, your skin folds don't really matter compared to someone else's skin folds. And you really are tracking changes over time rather than the total sum of your skin folds because it's just going to be individual, you know, it's it's going to be very, very individual. Uh, but the thing with skin folds as well is that just make sure that if you are having your skin folds taken, I would just highly recommend having them taken by someone who has done the ISAC level one course because you need to be landmarked. So landmarking is where the anthropometrist will mark very specific tuberosities on your bones. They'll take certain measurements on your body and they'll make these very specific marks for the sites that they want to take that skin fold measure, you know, because that way it is very, it's a repeatable measure, you know, and it's a lot more accurate because they're guaranteed to take the measurement at the exact same site every time, you know, 
Don't have someone just come up to you, not mark anything on your body. Just say, oh yeah, you know, I'll just pinch this part of your bicep, add it up on my iPhone calculator, and hey, here's your sum of seven skin folds or something like that. Like, if you wanna do this accurately, you know, definitely invest in someone who is qualified to take your skin folds. If you do want, you know, accurate measures and tracking your body comp change, so. Yeah, just had to um, just had to mention that. But yeah, mm. skin it's kind of like doing a dexa and eating a big meal beforehand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and training. Beforehand. Yeah, and but the thing is as well, like don't try to compare these methods because they are, especially in terms of the body fat percentage, which really doesn't matter, guys. Yeah, like it it's just a number pulled out of a hat. No one really freaking knows. But the thing is, comparing dexer scans to skin folds is that skin folds can obviously only measure subcutaneous fat, right? So the fat underneath your skin, we can't measure- Technically all fat is underneath your skin. No, visceral fat. Oh yes, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but the thing is, I'm not gonna like pinch the fat around Jack's liver, around Jack's heart or something, because ouch, (laughs) right? But the thing is, is that yes, you're reading for body fat percentage, if you're calculating that from skin folds, is going to be much lower than a DEXTER scan because DEXTER scans take into account subcutaneous and visceral fat. And please don't be upset that you have visceral fat because you need that shit to survive, okay? You need a little bit of fat around all of your organs. So don't be upset if you get a DEXTER scan and it doesn't say that you're 2% body fat because I'm glad you're not 2% body fat and you're still alive, Mm. so. Anyway, moving on to the next question. So this one says, thoughts about the paleo diet for IBS? Ooh, all right. So the paleo diet. So if we were living in the paleolithic era, what would we eat, man? So (laughs) people who essentially follow the paleo diet, essentially they restrict themselves to only eating fruits, vegetables, nuts and seeds, like lean meats, fish, right? And they try to avoid any sort of grain or legumes, dairy. Apparently they even avoid salt and potatoes. Like I I don't, I don't flip enough. Dude, they don't have any sodium in their diet. Like (laughs) what are their transporters doing? I don't know. But yeah, so essentially- How are they peaking? How, (laughs) dude, you can't peak on paleo because dude, you don't have salt, man. You're gonna look flat, all right? But, um, okay, so paleo diet for IBS, what do you think? So first of all, I think it's important to explain what IBS is and essentially it's irritable bowel syndrome. And it can be set off by a, di- a number of different things and it's quite variable depending on the individual. So for example, someone who has a very stressful lifestyle could have IBS and it flares up whenever they're very stressed or very strung out, anxious, etc. And others could be set off by specific carbohydrates such as FODMAPs. And FODMAPs stand for fermentable oligodimonosaccharides and polyols. So they're just different types of carbohydrates. And even the anatomical structure of someone's colon. So say if they have a very long, long intestine or a very large colon, that can influence how they digest certain foods and uh, impacts constipation and yeah, IBS in general as well. So, and then some unfortunate person will have like a combination of everything and like not a good spot to be in. Yeah, so that's the thing. So IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, it's kind of like an umbrella term that just does encompass all of these things that can, you know, aggravate the bowel, right? And it is different to IBD, which stands for 
inflammatory bowel disease. And the top two there are ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. So that's when your bowel is actually in a diseased state and it is very differently and the treatment is very, very different compared to irritable bowel syndrome. But like you said, Jack, you know, stress aside, also things like alcohol, things like smoking, these can set off, you know, irritable bowel syndrome symptoms, but FODMAPs are a huge one. And I guess it kind of makes sense, but it also kind of doesn't because when you think about the paleo diet and the types of food groups that it restricts, right? So things like grains, which are high in fructans, and also things like legumes and beans, which are high in oligosaccharides, also dairy, right? Dairy is a disaccharide, the lactose. So I guess if you were susceptible for your bowel being set off by those certain FODMAPs, then yes, it might be appropriate to limit some of those things in your diet, but it doesn't necessarily make sense by just blanketing your diet as entirely paleo for IBS because the paleo diet does include a lot of fruits and vegetables and vegetables, you know, they are very high in fructans as well. And fruits are very high in fructose and polyols, you know, vegetables have polyols too. And even nuts and seeds, those can be high in fructans as well. So like there's a whole mix. So you can't just necessarily say I'm following a paleo diet for my IBS because like treating IBS needs to be so specific to the individual. And if you're actually going to go about following a low FODMAP diet, you really need to be working very closely with a dietitian in order to do that. And the thing about that is that you just identify the very, very specific foods that you, that your gut is sensitive to, and you still keep in the rest because you still need variety in your diet and a low FODMAP diet. It's not supposed to be chronic. You know, it's supposed to just be acute. You're not supposed to follow a low FODMAP diet forever, forever. Otherwise you're probably going to run into nutrient deficiencies. And yeah, the paleo diet, it's just so, so silly, man. Like I swear in the paleolithic era, right? If they saw a cow on a field, right? They wouldn't be like, oh no, I'm not going to drink its milk. I'm paleo. <laughs> like if they knew how to squeeze an udder and get some nutrients out of that thing, they would be right on it. I swear to God. <laughs> It's not just that as well, but you have to like think what was the life expectancy then as well. Uh -huh. And yeah, I don't think that was just because, uh, I don't know, the, the wildlife was trying to eat them. It was due to their, their health in general as well. Oh, so. dude, it was literally just the people in the Paleolithic era trying to survive and they were eating what they had access to. Okay. Like they weren't like trying to like be restrictive and be like, oh no, I can't eat that. I'm paleo. <laughs> and back in that day, there's actually a lot of really funny YouTube videos actually busting paleo myths and actually talking about how the broccoli that you buy these days at the supermarket, it does not look mm. anywhere near close to the broccoli that was back in the paleolithic era or like fruits and vegetables. Like they're Almost like everything has been genetically dude, modified. Exactly. I swear fruits and vegetables back then they were like half cacti. They were like spiky <laughs> as shit. Like I wouldn't go near that. <laughs> yeah. Like if you, if you want to look, look up what the foods looked like back then, then Google image broccoli, native broccoli or native banana or native any vegetable. And 
Yeah, like for example, bananas looked like ladyfinger bananas, but they were full of seeds. It's yeah. kind of actually gross. Dude, it's so... Thank God for GMO. I am so grateful that freaking scientists can now go into the DNA of fruits and vegetables and actually make them edible, you know? Thank, thank gosh. I don't want seedy bananas in my ice cream. No, thanks. <laughs> and it's even... GMO is... And I think people always think negatively of that just because of the media, but like... GMO is also changing the foods for our benefit in terms of the nutrient content. So naturally, anthocyanins are high in fruits and vegetables with like red or purple or dark blue skin. So like uh, plums, blueberries, capsicums, stuff like that. And there was, I think, a researcher from UQ. He basically, he was one of our lecturers maybe, but he basically tripled or doubled the amount of anthocyanins in dark red plums or something and he coined it his own name queen so. garnet plums yes. <laughs> yes. yeah another good example of that is golden corn so corn has been genetically modified to be golden so it's a little bit more yellowy orange right it's a lot brighter but it's been genetically modified to have higher amounts of lutein and zeaxanthine which are two absolutely essential nutrients for eye health so yeah, they've been able macular to... Macular degeneration. Yeah, can prevent macular degeneration. That's right. That's what we learned in food science. So it's so cool, guys. It's so freaking cool. So yeah, I'm I'm all for GMO. It ain't scary. It's literally keeping us alive. And it's much better for farmers. You know, it's much better for actually producing an amount of crops that aren't going to die. They have a longer lifespan. Like, they're not going to be eaten by a bunch of bugs. They're more nutrient-rich. Like... It's a good thing, okay? It's a good thing. Awesome. So that wrapped up our final listener question. And as usual, we'll end on something that we learned this week. So Jack, I feel like I've gone first for like almost every single week. So Jack, what did you learn this week? So I learned that it really pays to have someone in your corner and someone who is willing to help you out just due to their own selflessness and because they want to. And that leads us on to saying that we do have something very exciting down the pipeline that we won't mention just yet, but it is going to happen quite soon. Two things actually. So, and that's just purely due to the generosity of a handful of individuals and I guess luck and a little bit of work on our part as well. A little bit of work. I'd say it's quite a lot of work, dude. We've put in the work for this. Yep. But yeah, hopefully we can reveal that in the coming weeks. We're very excited to, but what did you learn, Tiara? Ooh, yeah. Okay, so this week I learned how to do a power pose. So yesterday I had a posing lesson with Joey Cantlin. He just helped me tweak my posing for IFBB bikini and ICN fitness and sports model. Couldn't thank him enough. You know, Joey is a freaking master poser teacher. But yeah, Joey was really helping me find out poses that really suit my physique. And uh, I learned how to do a power pose. So essentially a power pose, it's almost like a superwoman pose. So when I'm on my side pose for ICN fitness, instead of just having like one hand on my hip and then one hand down by my side, actually putting both hands on my hips and flaring my lats, like it's like superwoman, man, power pose. So that's what I learned this week and it looks really freaking cool. I love it and I'm really excited to actually keep practicing it and show it off on stage. So 
Yeah. But yeah, guys, I guess that is the end of our 65th podcast episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, if you did enjoy it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we will catch you next week. See you guys.